you want to carry people along in an interesting and fun way. And you want them to hear it and visualize it. And if you tell a story, if you put in pictures, you use humor, you go in as your authentic self. You're a person and a scientist. I'm David Oti, and this is The Power of Story and Science, a mix of content and conversations on how to bring your science to life through powerful presentations. This is the episode that proves scientists are not all introverts. Dr. Stacy Tannenbaum is a senior director of Pharmacometrics, and I'll let her explain what that means. What our conversation means for you is a fresh way of looking at how to make even the most esoteric science interesting. Graphic novels, lobster hats, it's all here, and it's all part of being your authentic self. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Oti. And as you know, on this program, we have a mix of content and conversations. And I am pleased to be having a conversation today with a scientist who seems to have a real knack for helping people uh, explain their science in fun and creative ways. And so that's why I'm so pleased to welcome as my guest on today's show, Dr. Stacy Tannenbaum. Hi, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad you're here. And I would love to just get a little bit of background uh, on your, your field of science, because it's one that I'm not familiar with. I have, I have spoken to the Association of Pharmaceutical Scientists, uh, but you have a specialty that even within pharma is not that well understood, don't you? I do. I am a pharmacometrician. So what that means is that if you look on the back of a bottle of Tylenol and it says take two of these every four hours, that's what I do. Uh, we analyze data from clinical trials. We look at drug concentrations as well as drug effects, and we fit these to models. And based on that, we come up with dosing recommendations for the greater population, or we look to see whether or not you need to modify the dose, for example, in special populations. If you look on the back of a Tylenol bottle for children, it'll tell you to dose by body weight, and that's because it's very important for us to get the right amount into a child. For adults, it's a little bit less important. We have a very wide range of concentrations that we can get the drug to. So really, I'm a data scientist, but I analyze specifically data from clinical trials. You're a data scientist, and you data analyze scientist. data from clinical trials mm-hmm. to come up with dosing recommendations. Exactly. Oh, okay. Now I understand what a pharmacometrician is. <laughs> That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> that was new to me. That was new to me. Next time I look at the at the back of a uh, of a pill bottle label, I will think of you. Thank you. Um, I've uh, been been looking at uh, uh, my bottle of uh, uh, ibuprofen a few times recently because after getting my uh, my second COVID vaccination about four days ago, I had a couple of days of feeling really lousy. <laughs> I got my first one last week, which was. The most excited I think I've been to ever be stabbed with a needle, and I'm really, really looking forward to number two so I can see my friends again. I am a scientist who is also an extreme extrovert, and this isolation is 
not my favorite. So I'm really looking forward to getting out again. <laughs> it is isolating, isn't it? And and yet it we've is. developed new skills, haven't we? Like the skill. Yeah, of I, I like working people. in pajamas. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> or like the skill of meeting other people this way uh, right. via Zoom. Yes. Um, a scientist who's an extrovert. I, I'd like to drill down a little bit on that. You know, there is this um, stereotype, obviously, that uh, science is a solitary pursuit and tends to draw people who have a, a an analytical mindset more so than a maybe a social dynamic mindset. I'm not sure what you'd call that exactly, but there, there's a a tendency to assume that introverts are overrepresented. In, in scientific fields. Do you, do you perceive that? I think you have more diversity than apparent. I think when I'm doing my work, I appear introverted. You give me data, I'm sitting at the computer, I'm analyzing data, I'm thinking I can spend seven, eight hours a day looking at data, making graphs, writing scripts. But when it comes to interpretation of my results when it comes to figuring out what are the problems I need to solve, you need to do that in a team environment. So plus, plus solving problems, sometimes you run into to models you can't solve and you need people, you need to be able to bounce that off of other people. And drug development in particular is a team sport. It is not something that you do on your own. So I think that you have people who are introverted in their path. But I think you actually have probably more extroverts than you think. It's just because you see us at work doing our tasks. We oh. tend to be more focused maybe on solving problems and, analyze, you know, particularly for data scientists, analyzing mm -hmm. data and sort of sitting at our computers. But there is so much team activity and discussions and brainstorming and working together to come up with interpretations and scope the problem that I think having some extroversion is never a bad thing for scientists. <laughs> It is a practice art for a lot of people, though. It, sometimes people do need to come out of that box. There's also a place for people who don't want to come out of that box. These are people who are the hardcore data analysts, and they're very happy sitting at their computer all day, every day. Uh, but they have to work with somebody who can bring their messaging to the team. Have to work with somebody who can bring their messaging to, to the yeah. team. I like that. So. I heard you say in a couple of different ways, at some point you've got to back away from the computer screen and interact with people for your work sure. to make a difference. Absolutely. Because what we do is so technical and, and our models are often not well understood and, and on their own. If I came to you and I showed you my script and my model and, and my goodness of fit plots, you wouldn't know what they mean. I have to interpret that for you. Mm -hmm. And I also have to tell you how I'm answering your question, how sure I am with my answer, how I've, you know, what are some of the limitations of the model? Because all models are approximations, so you have to make some assumptions, you have to make some limitations. Um, and if I just send you the results, you're taking, you, you need to take that with some context. And the only way to get that context to you, particularly if you're not a technical person, you don't understand what we do, is to sit and talk to you. And that's why it's so exciting and important for me and as I've moved from being a hands-on person, I, I don't really do much hands-on anymore, to being more of a, a manager of these departments and these groups and a leader in this area, that has become my passion. It is how do you translate this technical and sometimes very boring stuff into something that is going to be valuable and important and insightful to the people who matter? Because you can have the best model in the world, but if nobody understands it, they're not going to use it. So you've wasted your time. And 
in pharma, we don't have time to waste time. <laughs> we don't have resources to waste time. We have to, you know, we, we have a job to do and a, and a deadline to do it in. And what I find interesting in what you just said, there's a number of things. It was, that was very rich, what you just said. But one of the things I heard you saying is that as you moved from being primarily a data analyst to being primarily uh, a manager, those communication skills became even more important. Absolutely. Because I also have to advocate for those who have that difficulty. I have to train my team, you know, before my team will go and present something to the the stakeholders, we sit down and we go through the presentation and I get out, I, this is not a red pen, but I get out the red pen and I start mm-hmm. flashing stuff. Like you don't need to show them this equation. You don't need to show them this plot. It's not meaningful to them. You need to get to the brass tacks and tell them, my model says that your PK is, you know, that your clearance, which is a, a parameter in, in pharmacokinetics, how quickly you efficiently uh, get rid of the drug is five, five plus or minus X. And as a result, you should dose your drug twice a day. You know, so there are, there are, what does this mean? What's in it for you? Mm-hmm. You don't care about the modeling I do. I care about the modeling I do. You care about the result. Um, I'm just, result. A, yeah, I'm somebody who answers a question and I use a particular technique to answer that question. Could be gut feeling, could just be making a plot, could be doing modeling, but how that result gets interpreted and how it gets used it's really up to my team, not so much me anymore, but my team to make sure that their team, the, the clinical team, the people who d- develop the drug, understand the results and can interpret that into their own meaning to be able to make a decision. So I, I think it, it's really about decision making. What, what we do impacts decision making. And if we can't help people understand the results, can't make the decision based on our, our outcomes. If you can't help people understand the results, they can't make a good decision. They'll, they'll make a decision no. the old-fashioned way. This is the way we've always done it, this or is this yeah. is my gut feeling, or, this oh, I've seen time. a drug like this before, I'm going to do X. Uh, and they'll just discount what you do, and you're losing credibility for next time, too. Um, credibility is really important, particularly for scientists. Um, you screw up once, people are going to remember that even if you have 10 successes before that. So you have to really be careful and thoughtful about how you present your work. And one of the things that I hear scientists say quite often is that they have to be able to tell people what are the limitations of their information. Mm-hmm. You know, scientists right. don't like putting information out there as absolutes. As you yeah. said, you, you know that your models have limitations. So you know there's limitations in the conclusions you can draw from your data. Um, is that does that make it easier to communicate with other scientists who share that expectation, ex, that same expectation, compared with say, communicating to an audience of lay people? I think you've got to do that either way. So if you are whether you're communicating to other scientists who understand a little bit more that they're not seeing the whole picture. Um, mm-hmm. But you still need to tell people what are the limitations, because what happens is in modeling, we're making a prediction. So we are analyzing data, we're making a prediction, and we're saying, we think that you need to give this drug twice a day, or we think the dose should be 200, but you need to go and test that. And let's say you go and test that, and it's 100. Um, That's okay. Uh, 
if you've given them, it's probably between 100 and 300. But if you go to them and say, it's 200, then, then what happens is when it's not 200, it comes back to, to limit your credibility. So you have to really give your level of uncertainty. You have to give some limits around your predictions. And sometimes you can be very, very, very because you have a lot of data, you have a lot of, of, of information to support that. But sometimes really early on before you've given the drug to humans, for example, you have animal data that you've scaled mm -hmm. from, you're going to be a lot less certain. Um, so there's levels of uncertainty and you need to be clear about that when you're giving these results of sort of the, the parameters around the numbers that you're giving. And that, that's very important. I don't think it matters whether it's for lay people or, or not. I think for lay people, you don't want to go into maybe that level of detail as you do with other scientists, but you still need to yeah, actually, maybe it's more important with lay people because they are probably more likely to be skeptical about the hocus pocus. Yeah. People think that we, we put numbers in the machine and we, you know, punch, punch a button, go off and have coffee for six hours and come back and, a, and an equation pops out. But <laughs> it's obviously there's a lot more to it than that. Mm -hmm. And I think, other scientists recognize that when they're seeing an end result, there's been a lot of work previous to that. Whereas I think on the other hand, lay people may not recognize the, the efforts that it takes to get to that result um, quite as much as maybe another scientist would. That makes, that makes sense. Yeah, that, that does make sense because, and, and also lay people may not always understand the, um, the inherent limitations implied by saying, here's a range of values right. this could right. take on. Mm -hmm. um, people will tend to jump on the fact that you say a number as if that number is the whole story. Set in stone, right. And it, and it almost never is. Almost never is. Okay. Um, hey, I'm just curious about something. And I like to ask uh, scientists this ever since a conversation I had with, uh, well... <laughs> on a previous episode with one of my favorite scientists who happens to be my sister. <laughs> uh, she's a cell biologist. And um, so I, I like to find out about your journey into doing science. Can you remember, was there a particular teacher or professor who piqued your curiosity about science or encouraged your interest in it and, and steered you in that direction? It's, it's funny. People have asked me this before. I've always been mathematically inclined. Mm -hmm. So ever since probably elementary school, I was always excelling in math. And, and I went down the path to do math competitions and things like that in high school. And then I got into the computer stuff. So I, I knew I was going to do something mathematic and computer oriented when I went to college, but I wasn't really sure what. Um, I also knew that I was interested in medicine, but I'm I'm not a blood person, <laughs> so I, I don't think I could I don't think I could cut somebody open or, or or anything like that. So what I ended up doing is biomedical engineering. And um, after about two and a half three years of biomedical engineering, my path was towards orthotics and prosthetics. I wanted to make artificial limbs. That was uh, my interest. I was really fascinated by all of the 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 exciting engineering problems of making a hand that can pick up a tennis ball without crushing it and able to hold it. I mean, it's fascinating. I'm still fascinated by it, mm -hmm. but I was very lucky in that I had a particular professor who offered an elective course in pharmaceutical science. And 
I liked the professor. I had no particular interest in pharmaceutical science. I thought, <laughs> okay, okay, you know, cool. And I would say it was one of those lightning bolt moments. I'm sitting in the class and I saw pharmacokinetics, which is sort of the basis of pharmacometrics. And I'm like, I am doing that for the rest of my life. It was one of those just love at first sight moments. And still, I won't say how much many years later, I am still doing it. And I'm still just as excited about it as I used to be. So I would say it's Jim Jacobs, um, who was my professor in college. He actually ended up leaving um, leaving engineering and going to medical school. So, <laughs> um, but he, <laughs> okay. but he actually worked with some anesthesiologists over at Stanford. Um, and to talk about what a small world pharmacometrics is, I ended up working for one of them when I went to Novartis, which was my previous job. Um, one of the professors that he worked with that got him interested in this became my boss at Novartis. So <laughs> the, the world is extremely small. And I think it's, I'm very, very lucky to have fallen into this field. It, it really is exciting. And you can kind of nerd out on, on data analysis, but ultimately in the end, you're coming up with doses that help patients. So, you know, it, it kind of satisfies me as a someone who's always done volunteering and, and things like that because I'm helping people. But at the same time, I just get to do fun math stuff. And marrying math those stuff. two things for me is just, you know, it's, it's amazing. Um, as long as we can have an impact. And and that for me is why, to, to come back to the whole purpose of this podcast, that's why I do what I do. That's why I spend a lot of time on science communication because much as I love what I do and I would do it even if I didn't have that impact, isn't it better when you have an impact? Isn't it more exciting when you see oh, your dose on the back of the pill bottle? Um, that for me is so meaningful because you know that you're getting the right dose to the right patient. Um, and so it's, it's a, it's a beautiful effect of my science background is that I can actually do this to help those societies, help oh. society. Yeah. That must be satisfying and exciting. It's so satisfying. That, what, that the work that you do is abstract and, and is poorly understood. Well, maybe not abstract to, to many people. It's, uh, it's pretty abstract. Abstruse, to people. It's yeah. hard to understand. And yet yeah. it comes down to those instructions on the back of a pill bottle. Mm -hmm. And then that's where, that's where you make a, a difference to people like me. I would love to hear more about some of the innovative ways that you've talked about communicating about science. Uh, but before we do that, we're going to take a short break. Okay. This is The Power of Story in Science. I'm David Odie. My guest today is Stacey Tannenbaum, and we'll be back in a minute. You are a knowledgeable expert, and you want your expertise to make a difference to your audience but you can't see them engage their reactions. Therefore, you need new tools for engaging that unseen audience. Hi, I'm David Odie, offering you a way to pick up those tools. In my new self-paced online course, you will discover three ways to improve your story, one fascinating tool for hooking your audience's attention, and eight details in your physical environment that will set you apart from other virtual presenters. Today's technical presentations are going virtual, and that means you can reach a wider audience as long as you understand how to serve that audience. So join me for the online course, Own the Virtual Stage. Confidently connect with an unseen audience. Just go to ownthevirtualstage.com for details. 
Welcome back to The Power of Story and Science. I'm your host, David Odie, and with me today is Dr. Stacy Tannenbaum, a pharmacometrician. Did I say that right? Perfect. <laughs> and you were just telling me uh, the, the excitement that you feel in seeing how the work that you do uh, has such an effect. Um, people can pick up a, a, a pill bottle and read the dosage and they never know the science and the, the data analysis that goes into determining that dosage. They just have confidence that that will work for them. Um, and, you know, as you were telling me earlier about your journey into the science that you're doing, one of the things that came back to me is uh, you're, you're not doing that so much now, the actual data analysis, mm -hmm. you're, you're in a managerial role. Right. Okay, so what, um, what obstacles did you find that you had to overcome to make that transition? I already had done quite a lot of external leadership through organizations. Um, so from a leadership perspective, I felt okay. And from a management perspective, I've been in Toastmasters since 2003, so that's 17 oh, years. Oh, great. Let's hear so for I, Toastmasters. <laughs> oh, if, if you get anything out of this, this episode and this podcast, please go to Toastmasters. It's the best decision I ever made. But, but I think in, give, in Toastmasters, you learn a lot of professional development skills. You learn how to write an agenda. You learn time management. And in particular, for a manager, you learn how to give feedback. And I think that's really important when you're working with people who are both junior and, and senior, actually, for everybody. Everybody needs feedback. Everybody needs um, a check-in once in a while. They need quality control. They, they need uh, feedback on what they're doing, good or bad. And I think that the only way we're going to get better is to get feedback when, when we're not doing that. If you never say anything, no one will know. And, and I've become a lot more self-aware of what my limitations are as well as my, my strengths through my leadership with professional societies as well as through Toastmasters. So those are two things that have been helpful for me. I do miss the hands-on work sometimes, but at the same time, at least in pharmacometrics, things are moving very fast. There's new methodologies all the time. There's new software. And I'm okay that I'm not necessarily on top of all of that. What I need to be able to do is know that they're out there. And so as people come to me in my group who are doing the hands-on work, I have to know what resources to send them to. I need to know what organizations, what training courses, what materials are out there to help them. So my job is much more kind of high level than it used to be when I was in the weeds, but I can still read their modeling reports. I can still read their scripts and give feedback for that. So I'm still scratching that technical itch. Um, but what I'm doing now is I think kind of what I was born for. I, I did all the sexy, technical, cool modeling, <laughs> you know, in, in early in my career. And now I want to facilitate that for other people and facilitate the, the utility of that for other people. So I'm okay not doing it myself anymore as long as I still keep sharp in terms of, you know, I, I read journals and I, I keep up with, you know, the mailing lists and things like that. Um, but it hasn't been as difficult a transition as I had thought. Um, I actually really am thriving in, in this area because I really feel like I can have more of an impact on more people when I'm not just an individual contributor, but I'm helping my team. 
uh, do that. So I'm sort of expanding my ability to make an impact by sure propagating that to other people. Yeah, uh, and for me, that's been that's been amazing. Um, and I, I love it. I'm really, really happy. I, I'm where I should be. I feel like that. Oh, that's terrific. That's terrific. Well, uh, was there, as you look back on the transition that you've made, is there a, um, some training or, or mentoring um, in those managerial skills that you wish you had had sooner? So one of the great things that my company did is they set me up with an executive coach. And the executive coach made me do quite a lot of introspection. And I think it was, it, there was some pieces of that that were a little bit surprising. Um, and, and one of them is, and those who know me will not be surprised, is I have a very deep need to, to be loved. I need to be liked. I, I need everybody to like me. And as a manager, you're sometimes not going to be liked. That's you're right. sometimes, <laughs> so they've helped me to understand that respect and you know, being authentic and, and, and being respected is more important than being liked. I mean, I, I, I hope I'm liked. I, I think I'm liked. But at the same time, I've learned to let some of that go. And I think maybe if I'd gotten this earlier, it would have been a lot easier sometimes to move down this path because I wouldn't have been always so trying so hard to please everybody. And I think when you're in a a field like ours, we are, we're not service providers, but we're kind of in that service providery type of role. Mm -hmm. So I think that we're taught that we need to be people pleasers. So if somebody comes to us and say, I want you to do this analysis, you go, okay, I'll do it. Even if you don't think it's necessary, even if you don't think it's add value, you feel like you have to do it. And so I think the being able to speak up and to advocate for your own self, uh, as well as to, you know, to, to be a strategic partner as opposed to just an analyst. Um, mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of people, you're, you're taught in graduate school how to be an analyst, but not necessarily how to be a strategic partner and how to say no and how to um, work with your teams to really make sure that what you're doing is adding the most value and that you're not wasting your time or anybody else's. And I think those are things I've learned only as I've moved further in my career. So I think I spent a lot of time doing work that, you know, even though it maybe taught me a new skill, didn't necessarily add value to making a decision because somebody asked me to do it or or told me to do it. So I think self-advocating and also being strategic and understanding why you're doing something um, and also letting go of perfection. You know, for us, we are modeling data. So you know, when I talk about modeling data for those who aren't modelers, just think of a straight line going through a, a, a bunch of points. And sometimes if it's not perfect, you just want to tweak it a little bit. You want to spend like another five days. But if it's due now, you don't have time for that. So letting go of the less important components, letting go of perfection, I think is also something that would have served me well, you know, back, back in the day. And, and one of my jobs now is telling people when to stop especially the junior people, because they just want, they want perfection and we're never going to get there and we're never going to have time to get there. So that's something that I have really tried to work on in myself and saying, this is good enough. So when is good enough, good enough. You get that with time and experience. And I think, you know, you just have to learn to do that. Um, So those are some things I wish I had learned earlier, but I'm, I'm glad I know now and I'm glad I can impart to other people. 
Well, I'm glad you're able to impart those to other people too, <laughs> perhaps <laughs> through through this uh, avenue as well as others. And in speaking of other avenues for imparting wisdom about these skills besides doing the, the analytics, the, the things, the, the investigations that you learned to do in graduate school, you were telling me about a, a program you did that involves some innovative ways of communicating about science. Can you can you tell me more about that? These are some of my proudest, uh, this is one of my proudest moments. So we, there's two sessions I want to tell you about. And one, uh, this is at the American Conference on Pharmacometrics. And this is not my idea. I, I can't claim this idea. It actually came from, I think it was a, a Chicago-based uh, particle physics competition called the Windy City Physics Slam, where particle physicists collide, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> and they their their goal is to explain a very technical and difficult to understand concept in particle physics in 10 minutes or less in a creative way. So that could be, you can do a rap, you can do a puppet show, you can do interpretive dance, you can do <laughs> karaoke, you know, whatever you want. And so my colleague, Peter Bonet, um, who is, has written books on communication. In fact, he wrote a book called How to Be a Model Communicator, and it's fantastic. Required reading for all pharmacometrics. And pretty much any scientist, go get it. Um, but he wanted to do this, but he wanted to compete. So he asked me if I would share it. And it's so excited that I did. People really brought their A game. We had somebody who wrote a graphic novel, who read through this amazing graphic novel. It was fantastic. We had somebody who did an interpretive dance on uh, model algorithms that are very difficult to understand. It's really technical. But that interpretive dance, not only was it hilarious, and very funny and well done, but it explains the algorithm. Perfectly. Explained it. <laughs> it was Amazing. it was great. We had somebody who built a 3D model, and he did so by giving people a little kit that had a brownie and a fruit roll up and sprinkles in it, and then at the end you could eat your model. Um, <laughs> they they were absolutely creative. Uh, they were hilarious. Um, you know, the students did a live broadcast where they actually had students from all over the world. Uh, film videos of them as if they're doing a newscast and then they stitched it together as if it was live. So there were some live components and video components. I was so thrilled by this. The problem with this, as, as we talked about earlier, is scientists and extroverts, not everybody feels that comfortable to step outside of that box because it was really stepping outside of the box. Yes, so was, was we did it for two years and we got about 10 contestants over those two years, about five each. Um, and they were all amazing. But I think after that time, people were just like, how, how can we compete with that? You know, the bar is set too high. Um, so the third year, we changed it and we made it into a game show. And so we had uh, teams and each team played Taboo. So I don't know if you guys know the, the game Taboo, which is you have to say one word, but you can't say the five or six other words that are on the card. So if it's ocean, you can't say beach or sea or fish or salt, you know, you have to be able to describe the ocean without saying any of these words. But we did it with pharmacometrics terms. So we had pharma, and it took a, it, we were crazy. It took a very long time to put this together, but we had teams do this. So the team was standing behind the screen. One person was up there talking to one other person, trying to describe pharmacometrics terms without using any of the words. And we made it really hard. But the purpose of this was, it was fun, obviously, but yeah. You have to think on your feet. I, I was saying to David when we first started that this this is like giving a presentation, but all Q&A. <laughs> and 
But you have to think on your feet and you have to think under pressure. And when we're standing in front of the FDA and the FDA is asking us a question, you got to get your thoughts together. You got to calm down. You got to take a deep breath and you got to go. And you only have a certain amount of time. Uh, not that the, the FDA has a stopwatch with a buzzer on it, but at the same time, we need to learn how to think on our feet and, and be quick about it. So that was really, really fun. And, you know, the, all the teams brought their A games. The, the winners were the Wicked Lobster Matricians. They're all from, uh, from Boston, and they all wore lobster hats and little claws. So <laughs> people, people really had a great time. And, and I was just so thrilled that it was so well-received. Um, I got so many kudos. But look, this was all fun. But one year after the first innovation and communication session, I was at another conference and, and a woman walked up to me and said, I just want you to know that I changed the way that I present because of the innovation and communication session. And I was like, my work here is done. Uh, she said, I went and presented to senior leadership. And instead of making it technical, I put in a little bit of humor, like, you know, appropriate humor. She said, I used analogies. And the CEO of the company said, this was so good. I finally understand this. Can you go and present this to my colleagues? How much more do you want to hear than that? I mean, that, that to me is great. the whole purpose of this. It was entertainment, of course. Um, and for people in the audience, it was fun. But if it changed the way one person presented, that they thought about being creative instead of just kind of doing a dry technical presentation, for me, that is such a win. Um, and, and it was a I win, just, not only because that please. person did something different, but also because that person who who was in the audience said, I finally understand this. Yes. Oh, yeah. I, I, there were things that I understood that, you know, I should, as a senior pharmacometrician, understand. But the way that it was presented, suddenly you just go, ah, now that makes sense. Because somebody has thought to do it in a creative way. So that was fantastic. And I cannot recommend a session like this enough at other conferences. It was, you know, we did it before the social event, we had popcorn. Um, but the fact is that people, it, it's one of those things where people learn despite themselves. Mm. They were just, they were just there to be entertained, but people actually learned at the same time. And for me, that's a huge win. And so, so that's one session um, that I'm proud of, but another one that, that was also too much work, but totally worth it. Um, we work very closely with statisticians. Pharmacometricians and statisticians are both data scientists. We work very closely together. And we do have some common terminology, but there's also, we use a lot of statistics in pharmacometrics. And what I have been told by my statistician friends is we use a lot of it wrong, or we don't understand it that well, or we maybe take some liberties with it. So we thought about having a session where statisticians come to ACOP, which is a pharmacometrics conference, and explain to us the things that we do wrong. So think about that. If you are a statistician, you're coming to a pharmacometrics conference to tell a bunch of people in the audience that they're wrong. That is not necessarily going to go over super well. So we thought, how can we do this um, in a creative way? And what we ended up going with was having a courtroom. Uh, so we had a judge complete with the black robe and the, the powdered wig, which I realized is not American, but it's an iconic right. <laughs> thing. He had, a, he had a gavel and everything. So this is a statistician who is he's very, very strict, hardcore statistician, but he's also worked in pharmacometrics. So he understands both sides. 
And we actually had four cases where statisticians were suing pharmacometricians for using uh, statistics wrong. We had the whole people's court theme. We had opening credits. We had closing credits. And uh, at the end of each case, we had funny funny cases, uh, case names as well. But at the end of each case, after both parties had made their their, uh, arguments, Judge Ken made his verdict. uh, And then he would spend about five minutes explaining the really technical statistical stuff. So we had those little didactic components throughout, but we, we packaged it up in a, in a really fun way. So we had one guy who, who went to jail for um, contempt of court. Uh, We had one that was being thrown out. We had one uh, where we called on the, uh, the, the Supreme court justice who was hiding in the audience in his wig and, and came out to, to judge. Everybody laughed. We had a, such a fun time. I got to play the bailiff, which I really enjoyed. Um, but it was so creative and it was so different that people, again, came up to me and said, I learned something. But I didn't even, I didn't go there to learn something, but I learned something. I win. People had a good time, yet we had this really, I'm sorry, Ken, boring technical five-minute presentations for each one that really helped to have that didactic component. But can you imagine 90 minutes of that? So we wrapped these these technical, really kind of, I don't want to say dry, but a little bit dry, sorry. Yeah, nuggets. Yeah, we we wrapped these in these fun and silly um, scripted presentations, and people just loved it. I mean, it was a lot of work. I'm not. I'm not going to lie. This is this is probably ten times the normal amount of work. Uh, I mean, we we even had a jury. We we gave summons to people as they walked in the room. We just chose uh, our jurors and we made them sit up in the front, and they did have to vote for at least one of the cases. Um, so we had a script for each way. <laughs> All right, way too much work. I'm a little bit crazy, wow. as you can probably tell. But honestly, it was probably one of the most fun things I've ever done, and. So um, motivating when it worked. Um, yeah. People yeah, people works. were so forgiving. Um, you know, we had a couple of flips. Everybody was like, yeah, whatever. Um, people are a lot more forgiving when you're trying to have fun with something, when you're trying to experiment. If you just go in and you have this, you know, the three recorded presentations, you know, if there's a flip, if there's an audiovisual issue, if, if, if something screws up, people are annoyed. For something like this where you're being creative and you go in there and you're like, this could be a complete failure, everyone. Let's just try it. Um, People are a lot more forgiving and patient and kind of willing to to put up with a little bit of uh, silliness. I think people really appreciate it. You don't remember the dry technical presentations. You remember those. And being remembered is what it's all about. If people don't remember your app, your, your your message afterward, what good did it do? Exactly. Exactly. So those are two of my sort of prouder moments. And, you know, the innovation of communication, that took a lot of work. The people's court was crazy amount of work. But honestly, I wouldn't I wouldn't do it any other way. I was so happy about it. It was really fun. <laughs> we actually have recordings of that that I'm I'm happy to share with your audience if people wanna wanna watch it. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I can send you the links. All right, all right, that would be great. We can we can uh, embed those links in the in the uh, program information. Um, I tell you what, I, I I need to go ahead and draw this toward a close. Okay. So I'm going to uh, to call upon your best Toastmaster 
table topic skills. And remember, that's a two okay. time limit, right? All right. I'd like you to leave a final thought with the scientists or other technical presenters in the audience uh, about one thing they should consider doing in order to make their presentation more memorable. Don't be boring. And and I know that that's a, a big thing to say, but it is okay. Audience pending. If you're going to go to the CEO, don't wear a clown suit. But audience pending, it's okay to use humor. It's okay to use analogies. It's okay to put pictures and comments into your presentation. It's okay not to put your table of parameters it's okay not to put really complicated plots, get to the point, but you want to bring people on, along on a journey. I'm probably giving you 50 different things, but you want to bring people along on a journey. You want to tell a story and, you know, look at the title of the podcast. You want to tell a story. Why is this important? What's in it for you? How did I get here? Here's the answer. Sometimes you put the answer up front, but you want to carry people along in an interesting and fun way. And you want them to hear it and visualize it. And if you tell a story, if you put in pictures, you use humor, you go in as your authentic self and don't try to be, if I came in here all polished and it wouldn't be me. I'm, I am, I talk with my hands. I move my head a lot. I know that, but go in as your authentic self. You're a person and a scientist. So go in as the person Tell the story, tell them why it matters, use a little bit of humor, use diffuse the tension, be a little bit more relaxed. I think those things, you know, all, all come down to don't be boring, mm -hmm. but it's really about making the presentation interesting and valuable for your audience. And I think if you can do that, and it's going to be hard for some of you because we're always told to be very dry and be very factual. Um, I think you're going to be a better presenter for it. I know I know, I am as a result of that. Make it interesting and valuable for your audience. That's a great thought, I think, to leave people with. Because great. I'm always encouraging people to be more audience focused. You are not there to serve your data. You're there to serve your audience. Right. This has been such a great discussion. I've enjoyed uh, hearing about your, your science and I've enjoyed hearing about the fun ways that you've communicated about science. And so I didn't prompt you for this, but I just have one more question. Um, sure. What can people do if they want to follow up with you? Is there a, a, a website or a, an email cool. address you feel comfortable sharing? What, what, what follow-up should people have? Yeah, to, absolutely. Uh, you can email me. I, I will, uh, I'll send you my email address. It's stacy.tannenbaum at estellas.com, but I'll send it to David to put into the notes. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, of course. Please, if you find me on LinkedIn, let me know you, you, where you heard me <laughs> or, or how you found me. I get a lot of very weird LinkedIn requests. So I just want to make sure it's, it's legit. Um, okay. and you know, if you're interested in pharmacometrics, uh, which I always encourage, check out, uh, International Society of Pharmacometrics, it's go-isop.org. Um, and I'm always happy to talk more about this. And please, please go to Toastmasters. That, that, that's my parting. Go to Toastmasters. It is worth it. Um, but yes, please feel free to, to get in touch. And I would, I would love to hear from some of you to see if this was valuable and do the innovation session as well. Super fun. 
Super. <laughs> and go to Toastmasters. That's a great go place. Go to Toastmasters. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and if you'd like to follow up with me uh, with any comments on this program or suggestions for future guests, the easiest way to do that is just go to storyandscience.com storyandscience.com will take you to the home page of this program and from there you can contact me by email or even click the button that says uh, schedule consultation and you can go to my calendar and grab 15 minutes and we'll have a zoom conversation always happy to talk with my audience members so stacy thank you so much for being part of this program today it was really fun thank you so much and to everyone else thank you for being part of the story and science community This has been The Power of Story and Science. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend, leave us a review, or so that you don't miss anything, subscribe at Podbean or wherever you like to get your podcasts. This program is a production of Speaking of Solutions, LLC. Theme music by Kevin Lufkin. I'm David Odie. Thanks for listening. 